Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. Please turn your Bibles to 2 John. I was gripped just now as we were singing this, this verse. And as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. I need to hear that word this morning. I need to hear the church sing that this morning to be renewed in the truth of what that is. And as our brother Dennis was reminding us this morning about being glad to be here, I'm reminded too that um, you can't do church on your own. The church is the gathering of God's people. So I'm glad that we can gather together as God's people, that we can have this gift, this means of grace. It's, I pray, something that we do not take for granted, that we can gather together, that we would be zealous to gather together, not just on Sundays, in the mornings, yes, then, but throughout the week, when it's a little more challenging, when life gets busy, that we can encourage one another with these great truths together. I need it. I pray that you realize your need for it as well. The truth of the gospel is easily lost because the gospel can be easily lost. And it's not that the gospel is outrightly denied, but the gospel is no longer central and so denied its foundational place of importance. The implications of the gospel become central, but the gospel itself becomes assumed. The theologian D.A. Carson wrote in his book, The Cross and Christian Ministry, this anecdote about the Mennonites. He said, one generation of Mennonites cherished the gospel and believed the entailment of the gospel lay in certain social and political movements. The next generation assumed the gospel and emphasized the social and political commitments. The present generation, this is written in 93, the present generation identifies itself with the social and political commitments while the gospel is variously confessed or disowned. It no longer lies at the heart of the belief system. Carson goes on to write, we are right at this stage where many evangelical leaders simply assume the message of the cross 
but no longer lay much emphasis on it. The focus is elsewhere. He goes on to write, It is possible that we are the generation of believers who will destroy much of, of historic Christianity from within, not in the first instance by rancid unbelief, but by raising relatively peripheral questions to the place where functionally they displace what is central. He asks, what shall the end of this drift be? And so then the question that we ought to ask ourselves is, is the gospel cherished in our lives? Is the gospel cherished in the life of this church? Or have we begun to assume the gospel? Are there other social or political commitments which at one point were implications of the gospel, but now are the emphasis of our lives? Is something else, anything else that we cherish as a church? What is the focus of our time together? What is the focus of our conversations? What is it that unites us? And what is it that we would and should divide over? Is it the gospel or is it something else? We'll see, I pray, in our further study of 2 John this morning what the Lord might have to teach us about the importance of abiding in the truth, the importance of abiding in the gospel. For if John, this elder of the church, this apostle of God in Christ, felt the need to address the wandering from the heart of the gospel in this letter written a short 50 years after the earthly ministry of Jesus, how much more do we need to heed these words? Let's stand together, church, as we read 2 John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray, church. Lord, may we put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated.
One of the best ways to study the Bible, to ascertain the true meaning of a particular text so that we might rightly know and rightly apply that, is to observe any repeated words or phrases. As we've read the entirety of this letter, these 13 verses, do any terms immediately stand out because of John's repetitive use of them? You might think of words like father, command, love, teaching. But in these first four verses, John uses the word truth five times. In verse one, the elder to the elect lady whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also who know the truth. Verse two, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Verse three, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Verse four, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. One cannot escape, nor are we meant to, the foundation of this letter, the truth. And notice that it is not a truth or something that is true, but rather the truth. What is the truth to which John is referring? It's good to be sure that we understand the truth, what the truth is at the onset. The truth is God's word, the Bible. You read in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. But more specifically, the truth is the central message of the entire Bible, the gospel, the good news, which is why Paul can say, in Colossians 1, verse 5, the word of the truth is the gospel. But more than a doctrine or a set of beliefs, the truth is Jesus Christ himself, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. So let us not separate the doctrine or teaching of Christ from the person of Christ. And what is the gospel? A good 10-word summary is found in 1 Corinthians 15, Verse 3, there Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. Or as we'll sing in preparation for the Lord's table, the gospel song, appropriately titled, Holy God and love became perfect man to bear my shame, my blame. On the cross, he took my sin. By his death, I live again. Is that good news to you hearing it this morning? Do you rejoice in the glorious grace of God seen in the cross of Christ? Forgiveness of sin, cleansing of guilt, redemption, restoration, a new heart, eternal life. Through the first six verses, John has exhorted the elect lady and her children in this truth, culminating in the chief implication of the truth, to love one another as a fulfillment of the command of God. We read that in verse 6. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So why is this truth so important? Why is there such an emphasis on it? And we come to it in verse 7, which is the start of our focus this morning. Why is the truth so important? Because there are many deceivers who have gone out into the world. The reason why the truth is such an emphasis is because there are those who appear to know the truth, but are actually against the truth. 
those who would seek to lead others away from the truth, away from Christ himself. And we see at the heart of these verses in verse 9 the great contrast. Those who do, do abide in the teaching of Christ and those who, um, those who do not abide in the teaching of Christ and those who do abide in the teaching of Christ. And so that is the heart of our focus this morning, to abide in the teaching of Christ, to abide in the truth, to abide in the gospel. As we turn into uh, the outlines in your bulletin, we see three reasons why we must abide in the truth. We see three reasons why we must abide in the truth. First, we must abide in the truth because many will depart from the truth. We must abide in the truth because many will depart from the truth. I get that primarily from verse 7. Again, we see at the start of verse 7 the reason, the explanation for why John emphasizes continuing to walk in the command of God to love one another. Because there are those who do not. And John knows the danger those who do not walk in the truth pose to his readers by how John describes these people. He says that they are deceivers, they are antichrists. Well, what is a deceiver? The word itself means those who wander or lead astray. In fact, these deceivers are those who John describes in verse 9 as those who go on ahead of the teaching of Christ. So these deceivers are no longer on the path to Christ and are trying to get others to veer off the course as well. Notice he also calls them antichrists, which maybe seems a bit harsh to us. Seems like a loaded term, antichrist. Interestingly, the term antichrist is only used four times in Scripture, three times in 1 John, and then here in 2 John. But as we learn in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That, this is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. So what John is saying here is that these deceivers are those who are denying Jesus is the Christ. These are those who are denying the Father and the Son. And how exactly are these deceivers denying that Jesus is the Christ? You can see this in verse 7 that these are those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This idea refers to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Specifically, this idea refers not so much to an event in history or a future event, as much as the truth that in Christ, full humanity and full uh, deity dwells in unity, a unity that is even now true as Christ stands before the Father interceding for his church. I wonder how often we actually think about that as Christ intercedes, as we read this in Romans 8, for his church, that he is interceding as one who is fully man and fully God. There are those who declare that the incarnation to be an impossibility and that Jesus was merely a phantom or only appeared to be human, but was not actually so. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, why is the incarnation of Christ so important? How do we answer that question if someone were to ask us? Is that a central doctrine or is that a peripheral doctrine? Is it important or is it not? Well, I would say it's important. <laughs> and I would say it's central. It's central because it's at the heart of the atonement. 
It's the very, at the very heart of the gospel itself. If you have your Bibles open, let's turn back a few pages to Hebrews 2. So you can see it from God's word. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. This is referring to Christ. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And here we come to it in verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself had suffered when tempted, has suffered when tempted, he is able to keep those who are being tempted. The Old Testament sacrificial system had at its heart the shedding of the blood of animals to make atonement, to make reconciliation between a holy God and sinful man. But these animal sacrifices could not take away sins. Instead, they point to the pervasiveness of our sin, for they need to be offered year after year. And they pointed to the need for a single, a single sacrifice for all time. That sacrifice of the spotless Lamb of God, our Passover Lamb, who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus must be fully human to be our high priest, the priest who goes before God to represent his people, and to offer propitiation, to offer sacrifice. That's what we learned here in Hebrews 2. But he is also the propitiation himself. He himself is the atoning sacrifice that puts away sin and uh, who puts away sin. He could be our substitute. He could die in our place because he was fully human and yet without sin. May we never lose the wonder of the Incarnation. May we be Christians who celebrate Christmas the entire year, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now we know the one whom comes grace and truth. But these deceivers deny the coming of Jesus in the flesh, and, and so denying the Incarnation of Jesus Christ, they deny the entirety, entirety of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. They deny the truth and all the truth teaches and commands, they are anti or against Christ. And the question we ask ourselves is, aren't all those who are outside of the church anti-Christ or against Christ? What makes these deceivers any different from the unbelieving world at large? And the answer is that these deceivers look like Christians. The word translated as deceiver in these verses is translated elsewhere as imposter. And how does John describe them? As those who have gone out into the world. Let's turn to uh, 1 John 2. 1 John 2.
beginning in verse 18. 1 John 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. So do you hear it in what John writes there? These antichrists went out from us. They were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. And so that's very similar to what we read there in 2 John, that these meaning deceivers have gone out into the world. So I would argue that they were associated at one time with one of John's churches, and they left those churches, and they went out into the world. And this is perhaps how they were able to deceive those within the church, because they look like Christians. They have been associated with the church. And isn't that how deception often works? It's not that outright lies and monstrosities we have to be worried about as much as the subtle denials and plausible argumentation. There are those whom it seems like we could or should trust and yet deny a core tenet of what is the truth. So what sort of lies or distortions of the truth are we apt to be deceived by today within the church? The situation was especially important to John's readers because of the context. They were used to welcoming and supporting traveling missionaries. In fact, one of the emphases of 3 John is the great support that has been offered and should be offered to these missionaries. So if you are in 2 John, just flip one page over. At least it's one page in my Bible. Maybe it's more in yours. And we read there in 3 John, beginning in verse 5, Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Right, one of the functions of an elder of a church is to shepherd the church. Right, shepherding and oversight. And to be a shepherd is to, uh, first of all, know the sheep, <laughs> Lead the sheep and feed the sheep and protect the sheep. And I would say that uh, an elder or shepherd of the church can protect the sheep because he knows the sheep. He knows what dangers they will encounter. And so here we see an application of that because John knows the context in which these, this church is living. And he knows there is a particular danger in that context. We know that... There are dangers that can come from the world, from outside the church. But what we need to be reminded of is that there is also danger within the church. You can think about Paul's charge to the Ephesian elders from Acts 20, where there he writes to them or says to them, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This is why it's so important that within the church, we are not trusting in people or a person or personality as much as we are trusting in God's word. We point out where when we are preaching or teaching where we find it in God's word and that you being good Marines will examine God's word to see if it's true. So your confidence does not rest in a person but in Christ by his word. But notice that John's warning regarding these deceivers doesn't first address how to interact with them, but how to interact with the effect of their teaching on his readers' hearts. Let me say that again. There is this danger that is out there of these deceivers, but John does not first address how to interact with them, but how to interact with the effect of their teaching on his readers' hearts. This is our second point, why we must abide in the truth. We must abide in the truth so we keep the reward of the truth. We must abide in the truth so that we keep the reward of the truth. A friend once observed that it's not someone else's sin that will condemn me, but my own sin. This is a good reminder that even while we are to be concerned about the dangers outside the church, and there are many dangers outside the church, we are to be just as concerned about the danger within the church. And while we should be concerned about the sins of others, we first should be concerned about the sin within our own heart. This is why John continues with the command, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves, he says, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, another way you could translate that is transgressed, Everyone who goes on ahead transgresses and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So John is saying, look, see, be alert, be aware. One commentator notes that to watch out is to see something physical with spiritual results or perception so that a person can take the needed actions. In fact, we have something similar From the Apostle Peter in his second letter, there he writes in the final chapter, this is Peter now, there are some things in them, he's talking about the scripture of Paul's writings, that are hard to understand. So you're in good company if you find some things in scripture hard to understand. He writes there, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore... Beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So we see that those who are lawless will, through their ignorance and instability, twist the words of God to their own destruction. And Peter and John, I would say, both agree in this, that you are to take care that you are not carried away by their errors and thus lose your own stability. So these deceivers have departed from the path of the truth, the narrow way, and they entice others to follow them, to also go on ahead and not abide in the teaching of Christ. And what will be the result of following them? First, they may lose what we or they have worked for, 
And what does it say here in 2 John that they will lose? It says, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. And what is this reward? One interpretation might be that some of the children are led astray and lose, as one commentator, one commentator puts it, some of the reward for faithfulness and perseverance. And there are references in Scripture that talk about the varying degrees of reward in heaven. For example, in Luke 19, there in this parable that Jesus was telling, he says in this parable, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall, be, you shall have authority over ten cities. And to the second servant, saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. So we see a great faithfulness, authority over ten cities, a lesser amount of faithfulness, but still faithfulness, uh, Lord over five cities. Or as Jesus speaks to the church at Thyatira in Revelation 2, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and will give to each of you according to your works. So you'll be given according to your works. So it could be that what John is referring to here is that they're going to lose out on some of this reward, some of these crowns as they were in heaven. But I think John is actually saying more here than that. For what is it, if we ask ourselves this question, that they have together work for? Is it not the very reward of salvation itself, which is God? Look at what John writes in verse 9. Everyone, which is a pretty comprehensive statement, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does what? Does not have God. Do you not abide in the teaching of Christ, John is writing here. He says, well, then you don't have God. However, if you abide in the teaching, that is, you continue in, you endure in, you persevere in the truth of Christ, in the gospel, you have both the Father and the Son. This is why the foundation of the first six verses is so important. Are you in the truth? Well, being in the truth is evidenced by your sincere love for all who know the truth as well. Are you walking in the truth? What great joy for you and for others as you do so. Do you obey the command of God to love one another? This is the teaching of Christ, the command that we have had from the beginning. Or do you deny that Jesus came in the flesh? We do if we fail to love one another, which seems like a big jump. <laughs> well, I'm not denying that Jesus came in the flesh, but my love for one another kind of goes hot and cold at times. Are those the same thing? Let's turn to 1 John chapter 3 and make this connection here. 1 John, verse 3. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. Here John writes, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So let's look at this again. And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. So there, I would say, is this 
affirmation of doctrinal truth of orthodoxy, right? The incarnation of Christ, the atonement. So that's the commandment, that you do this, but John doesn't stop there. And he says, and love one another just as he commanded us. So there is a way, I would say, that our orthodox, our doctrinal affirmations, which we should be concerned about, we should be true in those things, but there's a way that that is actually evidenced. And if they're not evidenced in this way, that we actually may be denying those doctrinal truths that we affirm with our mouths. We actually are denying them with our lives. That's what he says here. And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments, right, to believe in the name of the son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, abides in God, remains in God, and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. John, 1 John 4, also has a similar kind of argumentation, right? If anyone says, I love God, right, an affirmation of doctrinal truth, I love God, I really do, Jesus is the Christ, and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So what do we risk if we do not abide in the truth? We risk the reward of the truth. We risk losing God himself. In the next two verses, John commands his readers now how to interact with the deceivers. After first watching their own hearts, now how are they to interact with these deceivers? And from verses 10 and 11, we learn our third and final point. We must abide in the truth to preserve the truth for the church. We must abide in the truth to preserve the truth for the church. So if we are, if you're not there, I'm going back to 2 John now, verses 10 and 11. We must abide in the truth to preserve the truth for the church. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So John's first command was to watch yourselves. Now he commands his readers to not receive into your house or give any greeting. Now again, perhaps we can think that John is being a little bit harsh here. This is, sounds a little bit unloving. Or after all, aren't we to show hospitality to strangers? That's what we read in Hebrews 13, verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And as we've already mentioned, a large portion of 3 John is devoted to showing hospitality to strangers as they are, it says, strangers as they are, by supporting them and sending them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Further, aren't we called to love our enemies and to bless those who persecute us. Perhaps some might view this as an evangelistic opportunity if indeed those travelers do not know the gospel. But it might be helpful to take a closer look at what exactly John is writing here. He says those, uh, regarding those who do not bring this teaching, so those who do not bring this teaching, literally 
they are not announcing the teaching of Christ. They are not announcing the gospel, the truth. They are false teachers, false evangelists, false prophets, false Christians. Regarding anyone who would come to them and make it evident that they are not in the truth, John says, don't receive them into your house. Now, this could literally be the home of the elect lady and her children. It could refer to a local church or a church present in this lady's house. It says, don't receive them into your house. But there is even more evidence to what John means here by the next phrase. He says, do not give him any greeting. So contrary to the warm greeting John opens and closes this letter with, here he writes not to give this deceiver any greeting. And literally this phrase means to tell to rejoice. And at its heart is the idea of a glad tiding. In the King James, it's translated, bid him Godspeed. So we see what John has in mind here, this receiving into your house is some kind of endorsement or a wish for success to these false teachers. And we can even see this further developed in that final verse, verse 11. Here we have this closing idea or explanation. So beginning again in verse 10, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For, why? What's the explanation? Whoever greets him, bids him Godspeed, wishes him success. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. That phrase, to take part, is the same word translated as participation or fellowship. So what John is saying here is that his readers shouldn't participate or provide Christian fellowship to those who aren't Christians, because to do so would be to participate in or have fellowship with their wicked works. And here we see the importance of true Christian community, true Christian fellowship, which is meant to be so much more than a meal together after service or a coffee before Sunday school. It is true participation in one another's lives. And the church has a special kind of responsibility within God's kingdom as an embassy, as those who recognize or affirm those who are citizens of the kingdom. That's why to be a member of this church, you must give a credible profession of faith. It's why we reserve the Lord's table to those who have as a demonstration of this faith, this profession of faith, have obeyed the command of the Lord to be baptized. True fellowship is of such importance that with the practice of church discipline, the final step is to actually be sent out of the fellowship, to not participate with one whose, life, whose conduct and life does not conform to the confession of faith once given, one in whose life there is no repentance of sin, one who we might say is no longer abiding in the truth. The first six verses of 2 John are a beautiful depiction of the benefits of true Christian community and fellowship. There is love, there is grace, there is mercy, there is peace, there is rejoicing. And these last two verses that we've read this morning depict the danger there is in an impure Christian community of endorsing or affirming those who by their confession or by their lives deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the warning to the church is this, don't participate in wicked works. And make no mistake, the work of those who deceive 
of those who deny that Jesus is the Messiah is wicked, and all the more so because these deceivers purport to be Christians. How we see that abiding in the truth helps us to preserve the truth of the church. For those within the church, for those who will one day be part of the church, baptized into Christ and adopted into his family, we must with our lives and with all diligence contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Church, let us abide in the truth. Let us cleave to Christ. Let us cherish the gospel. For there are many temptations that will come to depart from the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look at your word written so long ago. We may wonder how it applies to our lives today. I pray that we would see through your word that what was written in former times was written for our instruction, <clears throat> that it does apply to us today, that the dangers that were there in the early church are the dangers that we as a church face even today. Or that we must strive to abide, to remain in the truth, in the gospel, that it must be central in our lives because there are many of those who will at one point confess the gospel and then depart from it. And in departing from it, they lose the reward, they lose you, for they are no longer abiding in the truth. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to watch ourselves, that we would seek to preserve and to abide in the truth for our own souls and for all the souls of those within the church. Let us heed the instruction, Lord, that we are to take care, lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart, leading us to fall away from the living God, but may we, Lord, as a church, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if we indeed hold our original confidence firm to the end. May that be so in us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.